Well, good morning and welcome to each one. And uh, it's good to to be here with you and to share this uh, this time with you this morning. I too just uh, yeah would echo what Jonathan said. It was a very uh, pleasant evening, Thursday evening, with the uh, community uh, volunteers and um, the uh, comments that I heard afterward uh, was uh, very positive and uh, they taught in some of them taught in particular how they enjoyed uh, sitting with among the youth and uh, so that was good I would like to take you back this morning to uh, the uh, uh, study the series that I've been uh, teaching on in as far as the New Testament ecclesiology and in particular the ecclesia a household of households I'd like to take you to Ephesians chapter 2, we've looked at this passage before, and it's a little bit like uh, taking a, uh, um, a piece of uh, meat, and, and you cook it, and, and you eat off of it, and then you, you warm it up again the next day, and, and you eat some more of it, and, and then you take the bone, and you pay, make a soup out of it, you know, and, and you, just keep getting, you just keep getting food and nutrition off of it. That's what I'm going to do with this passage this morning. I, there's just so much in here, and uh, I'd like to share it with you again. Let's start reading there in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And we sort of looked at that, that uh, those two verses previously, and we want to look and focus on the last two uh, today, in whom being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. I'm really excited this morning to be able to share the message that God has laid on my heart. I know quite a bit of time has elapsed since the last time I've taught on this series. Uh, and uh, if you recall, the, the last time I preached was over a communion time. And uh, I just felt like God wanted me to deviate from there. And then the time before that was at the uh, church camp when God uh, laid it on my heart to share on the uh, sin of pride. And so, uh, so, in reality, the last time I had taught on this series was uh, back in August 10th. It's over three months ago. So it's a little bit, uh, it's not quite as nice to try to do a series when that much time elapses. I was a little curious as I, as I uh, realized how long ago it was. I, I didn't recall anymore when I had started it, but it was actually a year ago last August. Uh, when I started it, and uh, last time was the 12th message, so it averaged about once a month, and I still have a couple more that I felt that God wanted me to share. My excitement this morning centers on the fact that we are really getting into the meat of what I felt God wanted me to share. So it took 12 messages to lay the foundation. Now we're building the house. I have really enjoyed uh, the discipline of engaging in this study. And I trust it's been helpful for you as well, as it has been for me. It has generated in me 
a greater appreciation and a love for the bride of Christ. Uh, I am fully convinced that this is really the heartbeat of God, his church, the bride of Christ. And uh, I, I, I just feel that if we, if we fail to grasp the importance of this entity, the entity of the church of Christ, and, and, and understand how important it is to God, then I think we will struggle and continue to f- struggle to find significance in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, I would just like to encourage you to keep pondering on the importance, the significance of our, of our relationship with Christ and how that evolves into the church of Jesus Christ. Many individuals are disillusioned with Christianity and church life, I might add, in general, and I believe part of it is because part of what's driving the cynicism is a lack of understanding New Testament ecclesiology or the ecclesia, the church of Jesus Christ. There is an alarming, casual attitude toward the church that is permeating our culture today. I'm not necessarily just talking about this church or congregation or our culture or among Mennonite church. I'm talking about church in general, particularly in the West, I would say. That there's a very alarming, casual attitude that is being taking, taken uh, concerning the church of Christ. And we're certainly not exempt. Christendom at large, including the Anabaptist churches... <laughs> are going through a tremendous shift. I see a tremendous shift taking place that I think is going to shipwreck a many of weak people of the faith. And the only hope that I can give you this morning is that we keep a firm footing under our feet. We must keep the anchor of truth before us and commit to live by it. That is really the only thing that will sustain a true seeker of God. When I see the kingdom of God, when I see kingdom of God people, God seekers, buddying up to the kingdom of this world, or when I see God seekers valuing the forms and the fashions of society, when I see when I see congregations putting more energy into the building than into the body, when I compare Christ's teaching of not taking thought for tomorrow, and I see Christians building many empires here on the earth as if they're going to stay here for a while, I'm concerned. And I think I have a legitimate concern. I would just like to say that if, if you think that you're going to arrive home safely by looking around to see what other people are doing, you probably won't. You must develop a heartfelt conviction for the Word of God and try to help see you through so that it will help see you through what I think we're going to face in the future. I, I just feel compelled to encourage, especially our young people and our youth 
our young marrieds and, and the younger generation, that we really are grounded in what is truth and what is right and have a, a firm relationship with Jesus Christ. Because I think we're going to face some things in the future that's going to call for you to make a decisive decision of whether you will stand with Christ or whether you will turn your back on him. I think we will possibly face that decision in our future. And I don't think it's, it may not be that far ahead of us. There's a probing question that I would like to ask. And the question in Q and what generated really this whole series is, what is the significance of the church? This is really the crux of the entire series. Why am I connected to a local congregation? If I'm already part of the church of Jesus Christ, why do I need to be connected to a local congregation? How much authority is vested upon a local congregation? Jesus said, if you recall, he said, all authority is given unto you. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? What does that mean to us right here? What is that authority that he has vested upon us? What should be my level of commitment to a local congregation? How much latitude should one have in that commitment? And these are questions that I think we need to wrestle with. It is most unfortunate that it seems that, that we have morphed into a mentality that the basic functions of the church is to provide a place for baptism, marriage, funerals, and yes, teaching if it doesn't interfere with my other interests. We'll make it to church on Sunday morning if we don't have anything else planned. And concerning Wednesday evening prayer time, well, there's enough of things going that it finally just gives us a free evening to just do nothing. It seems that we have settled, and I'm not talking about just us here. I I see it all across. I've talked to many pastors and um, <clears throat> I, thought, I think some of them struggle even more than what, what we may hear on some of these things. But it seems like we have settled for the individual to decide what level of influence that he will allow the church to have upon his or her life. In other words, we have come to view the church as an accessory. For many, it seems... Church has become an accommodating means to a desirable end. We add church to our other activities in life to help us arrive home safe. And, and I would just want to say that that's wrong. That is wrong. Church is not an accessory that we add to our life. It's who we are. It's what we are. You see, with this kind of attitude, church is no longer an entity by itself. Rather, it comes with with a list of options, as it were, the kind of sales sheet of Christianity, you know. It's the options that are ever before us. You know, if you don't like air conditioning, well, then roll down the window. 
If you don't like coffee black, then add some cream to it. If you don't like Irish cream, get hazelnut. If you want some really good coffee, get Jamaican me crazy. Um, if you don't want to come to church before Sunday school, then you're just going to have to live with it. If you don't like that I'm doing that, then you're just going to have to live with it. Um, if you don't appreciate a conference mold, then try an independent model. If neither of those suit your fancy, well, then just try a home fellowship. If you can't handle the Amish, try the Mennonites. And if the, if the Mennonites are too stifling, then, well, why don't you try the missionary brand? And by the way, if the Baptists are too, are too liberal, then by all means, try the Mennonites. And the saga goes on and on and on, and we've seen a lot of that happening. And, and I'm sure you realize that in part of this, I'm, I'm being facetious, but, but the fact remains this take it or leave it mentality, this attitude toward the church is damaging deep relationships that from, or, or keeping deep relationships from being built within the congregation. Listen, if you think that Jesus Christ built the church to satisfy your needs, then you are wrong. Just last week, <coughs> I heard an indirect response from someone in this congregation that said, if so-and-so doesn't happen over here, then I'm not going to participate with so-and-so over here. And what I want to say is that you're the loser with that kind of an attitude. Unless that kind of attitude is dealt with, you will lose out on the end or in the end. And, and, and so saying, I am, I am not indicating that, that we, or advocating that we uh, cannot have opinions. In fact, I think it's good to have opinions and we should express our opinions about things and matters in the congregation. But we also must get beyond the point of demanding things only for our needs to be met. I want to be really careful how I say this. And um, um, particularly I want to be very sensitive to Henry. He's not here this morning. <coughs> Last Sunday in his message he talked about, and I understand where he was coming from when he said what he did, and he was referring to a wedding, a, 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 a wedding between a husband and wife, and he said it's all about the bride. And yes, I think we have made it all about the bride, but when it comes to the spiritual life, is it all about the bride? A flag went up in my heart when that was said. And I would just, and I'm not chiding him in any way, and I'm certainly wanting to be sensitive how I say this, but let me just be very clear about this, that when it comes to church life, it's not all about the bride. And, and hence, God makes that, God makes that, dis, he makes that parallel 
about a physical marriage uh, with, the, with the marriage of Jesus Christ and the church. And, and I would just say that in the Western world, we have gone beyond what I think is a healthy comparison to Christ and the church when we focus so much on the bride and we take away from Jesus Christ the groom. Whenever I hear someone say that they're going to leave such and such a church, possibly even happen in this, in this congregation right here, because they don't feel love, then I can conclude quite possibly that there has been very little effort on their part to see what they can give back to the congregation. Is that fair to say? These things are things that we really need to look at face-to-face. They might be hard to hear, but I think we need to talk about it because there just seems to be an epidemic of, uh, of discontent among many individuals in churches across our, this land. And I think somehow we have to get a hold of that and become committed to a local body because of what God had in mind when he establish the church. We have to come back and understand what is the significance of the local body, the church of Jesus Christ, which includes the local bodies. Now, in order to do that, we've laid a a big foundation in the last several uh, messages that we've preached on this. We, in the recent, the last couple ones, we also really took a close look at some of the historical past and I want to just take a real brief look again because of part of because of the time that has elapsed, but also to build the case for today. Uh, I want to go back and just look at uh, uh, the, the historical structures of the church from the time that the that Christ established the ecclesia, the church, the New Testament church. The first one that we mentioned but did not elaborate a lot upon was the New Testament, the early church structure. We really haven't looked at that yet, and that's what we want to do today, Lord willing. The, the, the second one that we looked at was the, the structure of Catholicism, and then last time, or the last time I preached back in, in, uh, in August, we looked at the third structure, and that of Protestantism. I'd like to go back just a little bit and look at those structures. The one that we looked at first on Catholicism, we really focused upon Constantine, the one that is generally looked at as the the leader, the emperor, (coughs) uh, that really changed the whole paradigm of the early church to what took it into the Dark Ages. Remember that? a lot of history that we talked about in a short amount of time. The Roman papal system uh, prior merely arranged itself from a top-down government, and the Emperor Constantine uh, used his uh, influence and arbitrarily and, and successfully merged church and state into one entity. Because the government and the church was so intertwined from that point forward, uh, it was difficult to separate the one from the other. If you rebelled against the government, you were rebelling against the church. 
If you rebelled against the church, you were rebelling against the government. And hence, the church defaulted to use force to achieve its desired end. Notice that Jesus, in his teachings, always taught that there are two ways. He always gave us choices. Uh, He never demanded allegiance to himself. The way of the cross is voluntary. But in this structure, uh, there 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 were no options. You follow what we say, or you're head is off. And so we see that there were seven levels of hierarchy through which God would talk to the laity. God was at the top. Of course, Constantine began that at the, uh, at the top. Constantine, many people refer to him as the first Christian emperor. Constantine, and I'm saying this <clears throat> because of the fruit that we see in his life, I think we can be fruit judges. He was not a follower of Christ. Far from the, I think he was far from the kingdom. Now, he was very soft towards Christianity, but I think it was only for his benefit. And so the the resulting uh, effect of this kind of structure, and by the way, laity went back up to God through the same line as what it came down. They had to go up through through this, uh, you know, through through the the seven layers of, of hierarchy, and the resulting effects of this structure is that man became the standard to follow rather than the word of God. This totalitarian model lacked merciful and loving relationships, and most of the people lived in mortal fear of this hierarchy. The, the, the structure uh, diametrically opposes the biblical model of household, of households uh, 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 idea or, or the, the, uh, the um, uh, plan that God had established and what we'll look at today. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, like we know, many of those who are in this audience this morning this has been our past. This is where we have come out of, this hierarchy, structural, Catholicism uh, idea of church. Nearly 1,100 to 1,200 years that people viewed church in this way. Much longer time than what it was the New Testament idea of church. The, the, what we would refer to as the early model, the apostolic model of Christianity, that only lasted about 300 years. And of course, then has we've seen fruits of that since then, since the Dark Ages. But this model was in effect much longer than the apostolic early church uh, structure. Well, along came October 31, 1517, and it was the day that Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the the door of the All Saints Church in in, uh, Wittenberg, Germany. 
protesting the sale of indulgence. And I told you back then what the sale of indulgence was about. I'm not going to go into that. But his bold actions, and by the way, let me just back up. There was something I wanted to say about this. In this model right here that we see, there was a lot of resentment and a lot of bitterness toward those who were at the top of the, of the hierarchy from this level right down here. Many, many people were, were anti-government and anti-leadership and anti-pastors or priests at that time. And there was a lot, of, a lot of bitterness, a lot of resentment, which generally results from an authoritative leadership style. Now, let me just say again that I think it is, I want to say this very charitably, <laughs> but if, if, if you have found yourself in this kind of a structure at some point in your life, I think you need to be very, very careful, first of all, to deal with the bitterness and resentment in your own heart, but secondly, that you be very careful what kind of changes you begin implementing in your life. Because many times those changes are driven out of resentment to the past. And we're not in a frame of mind to make good, wise, and sound judgment when we are, when our hearts are wrapped around with that kind of resentment. That's a side note, okay? That's extra. So there's a lot of resentment. Luther's bold actions ignited a flame of, uh, of resentment that had built over hundreds of years, and from it emerged a reformation that eventually became known as the Protestant movement. Now, who remembers in that message, I talked about a person that, that had lived many years before this Reformation time, but was very influential in the leaders of the Reformation. Who remembers who that was? I would say about two-thirds of the message wrapped around this guy's ideas and his theology. Remember who it was? Augustine. Augustine had was had the writings of Augustine were the let me let me say it this way the the leaders of the Reformation were heavily influenced by Augustine's writings, okay, and from that they developed a faith-only theology that promoted a much more loosely controlled environment than the papal system from which they had just emerged. So rather than a top-down structure, the clergy now found themselves standing on an equal platform beside the layman. Priest and laity stood independently, independently beside each other with a faith that was too personal and too private to be judged by one another. And, and, the, and the idea was that I am solely responsible and accountable to God. I am under God. I give account to God. And it's really not your 
It's really not your matter what I do in my life because God will judge me. And so they began to, the, 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 it created a, an, a, uh, an atmosphere where, where there was a lot of independence between the laity and the, and the leadership of those structures, of that structure. There were also a few other things, some, what I would call significant flaws uh, in their teaching, and, and one of them was that their, their faith-only based theology. The other one was the doctrine of, of predestination. We looked at all of that. We explained that. Uh, the defending the infant baptism. And then, of course, their, their influence uh, by, the, by Augustine, who, uh, which included the uh, just war doctrine, and their, um, their support of that, their justification of that. The totality of their teaching produced what I would call a two-tiered theology that separated salvation from the lordship of Jesus Christ, which then in turn also severed the faith in their life from the works in their life. So a greater emphasis was placed on the historical point in time when one was born again rather than the sanctification and the regeneration of the Holy Ghost in their life. John Calvin, one of the movers and shakers of that era and of that structure, a person of great influence, said this. He wrote this. It's in writing. Salvation which began upon a point of faith could not be lost even if he were not followed, even if it were not, was not followed by a life of faithfulness. Another one has made, th wrote this, a very predominant figure in this Reformation, and he had this to say, he said, If anyone was a Christian and then would die in the lap of a harlot, he would immediately be ushered into heaven. This teaching is consistent only if you believe that, that, that only connection with a point of faith in your life somewhere in the past rather than also a life of faithfulness and sanctification in your life. Now, I know some of you probably will say, well, James, now wait a minute. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says that we are saved by grace through faith. And I 100% agree with that. And I don't think it's complicated at all. I think that passage is referring to how one starts the journey with God, but that one point of faith does not carry you through indefinitely if there's not sanctification and regeneration of the Holy Ghost in your life. If it would, then other passages in Scripture, many passages in Scripture, including James chapter 2, verse 17, where it says, Faith in itself 
if it does not have works, is dead. And so now just, just stop to think of what this kind of teaching was doing to those who had just come out of the strict Catholic papacy theology. And what happened was that grace was viewed as a license to sin without consequence. The morality of loose living escalated to distressing levels of depravity. So much so that Luther, prior to his death, as he looked back and saw the people who were living under grace, living under his faith only, living under this kind of teaching, he said that the lawlessness of those under grace was worse than those under the papacy. Now, I want to make a clause here. I want to I stop and pause because Keith has been teaching through the book of Romans that gives us a, a, a clear understanding that we come to Christ by grace. It is grace that brings us to Christ. But you have to bring the balance like he has been doing. You have to bring the balance with it, and I think here's where they lack in bringing the balance with it. Immediately, almost immediately, as this, as this reformation came underway, there were some who raised their voice against the reformed theology in defense of what they read in Scripture. This little motley group of believers on that side of the coin was not so much concerned about reforming the existing church as they were restoring Christian apostolic living. That's what they were really interested in. Their consuming question was to discover what the Bible has to say. They were asking the same questions that I'm putting to you this morning. What is the significance of the church? What did the early church believe? And think of them being in the 16th century. What would the first century Christians, how would they live in the 16th century? And we should ask those same questions today. I would propose that we today need to continue to ask these same questions. And suddenly they found themselves coming up against a very tough decision. Were they simply going to try to reform the existing papal system like the other reformers were doing? Or would they radically abandon what existed in order to follow Christ. That was the decision they had to make. And as they grappled with that, and as they read the Scripture, and by the way, remember that up until just a few years prior to this, the Scriptures were, was not made available to them except to the, the monks, the priests who studied them. And uh, it was all in Latin. It was the, the common folk world did not have the scriptures. But all of a sudden, the scriptures were made available to them, and they began to read 
the Bible and the teachings of Christ. And they said, now wait a minute. We are not following what Christ taught. And on that decision, it created two structures. I don't think they intended it to be that way, but it just automatically did. Maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit the way that Jesus taught. That if you follow the cross, you're going to have to leave a lot of other things behind. It just creates two ways. The rebaptizers. <clears throat> a lot of people think that what the rebaptizers from the Reformed people, from the Protestants, was the issue of, of, of infant baptism versus believer's baptism. That was not, that was not <clears throat> the controversial point between the two groups. Their insistence to live according to Christ's teaching was really where the controversy began. In other words, there were two radically opposing views of New Testament ecclesia. There was, there was, there was, a, there was, a, there was a difference on how they viewed church and what church was all about. That's what made the difference between the two. The one, as they looked at what the church is, the one insisted that they need to retain a sacral church that held dominion over a, the general populace in, in geographical areas. The other one declared that, no, that's not the case at all. It is that the kingdom of God happens within the hearts of men. And then manifests itself through their works. Believers' baptism, as taught in Scripture, um, okay, somehow I'm missing something there, but believers' baptism, as taught in Scripture, eventually became controversial simply because it conflicted with their tradition of baptizing infants. But when they really went to the scriptures and said, nowhere are we commanded to baptize our, our babies. It is upon our confession of Jesus Christ that we are to baptize each other. Then it became a controversial issue. And by the way, let me also say, I've used, I've coined the frame up, uh, the, the phrase up here, the rebaptizers, because the term anabaptism. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the word ana would mean ag again. It means again, Baptist baptizers. So it means the again baptizers, meaning that they were once baptized as babies, and then they were rebaptized as believers when they came to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. They were rebaptized again. And so it became a derogative term to those rebaptizers from the Protestants, saying they, they used it in, an, in a derogative way. They were the rebaptizers. 
And that's, that was a derogative term. Today, in this group right here, there are very few who are true Anabaptists. Literal. There are a couple of you who have been rebaptized based upon your faith in Jesus Christ. You felt like you were not born again when you were first baptized and you asked to be rebaptized. You are a true Anabaptist. Now, we use the term today as a, as a way of distinction. But uh, originally, they had not, uh, that, that was not the case. Well, the reaction and the rebuttal that came from the Protestants toward the rebaptizers, towards those who were kingdom seekers, was many, many times worse than the treatment that the, reba- that the reformers experienced from the Catholic system, from the, from the papal system. Many of our forefathers died from the sword of Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, much more so than from the, from the Roman ca- papal system. Much more so. Yet these apostolic Christians, as they read from Scripture and, and gained conviction in their heart, they said, you know what? If it means the sword, then so be it. We are committed to following Christ. And I think that's what Jesus was talking about when he says, unless you are willing to give up father, mother, brother, houses, lands, and come and follow me, you shall not see or you shall not inherit eternal life. And it's, I, I think what Jesus was saying that you are committed to following me at all costs. Nothing will keep me from following him. And should I ever have to face that decision, I have often prayed that God would give me the grace to stay true and faithful to him. So how did these rebaptizers see the church in light of Scripture? Isn't that the question we need to ask? How did they see it? If I were to sum up their theology in one verse, I would probably pick Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 19, part of the text that we use today. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Now, wait a minute. We've always looked at our, our, our Anabaptist background, our forefathers, as those who were strangers and pilgrims, didn't we? I mean, that's the term I always heard when I was growing up. They were strangers and pilgrims in this land. Well, they were. But in this verse, it says, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. <coughs> this may be oversimplistic, but allow me, if you will, to elaborate on their position starting in reverse of this verse. They were of God. They realized that they were of God. They were fully aware that they were of God. What mattered to God also mattered to them. Unlike their colleagues from the other camp, what became critically important to them, now this is very important for you to hear, okay? 
what, came, what became critically important for them was not so much the point in time that one gave his heart to the Lord, although they realized that a birth date is essential to life. Uh, they, they certainly did not discredit the new birth. In fact, they were very clear on the new birth. But what was more critically important to them than even the new birth and what was essential to them um, of greater importance was whether there was an ongoing faithfulness in their walk. Were they going to take Jesus' words literal or were they not? It mattered that the inner condition of the heart prompted virtuous deeds. In other words, their faith was more than just words. It produced a, a, a lifestyle Christianity. And I've, I've told you this before, but I've had many individuals talk to me over the years. And as I express my faith to them, they would say, oh, well, I'm not religious. And I say to them, hey, my friend, I'm not religious either. It's a lifestyle. Now, a lot of them don't comprehend that. Uh, but it needs to be a lifestyle. We do not tack on Jesus Christ to our lives. It's who we are. That is, that is a significant difference of apostolic Christianity. <coughs> Many people <coughs> add prayers, add meditation, add study, and they add a lot of things to their life as part of their religion. I've said already that if it's only a religion, I would not bother with it. Now, it may, it may produce a more productive, wholesome lifestyle by being disciplined in areas like that. But it, it, it has to be something more than just a religion. And this is something that these that these apostolic Christians back then were so committed to. They believed that their works characterized their faith. Now this was a polar distinction between apostolic Christian and Protestant slash Catholic faith. They took the words of Jesus to heart and lived according. The second thing is that they realized that they were members of a household. And this is very important. They clearly saw themselves as members of a household which in their mind was fundamental to the idea of ecclesia. I appreciated what Elsie said this morning about her love for the church. My, something just warmed within me when I heard her say that. And I, I trust that all of us feel that way. It's like family. We come back to family when we're together. And, 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 my, and my 
my challenge to you this morning, to everyone that is here this morning, I, could, I would just like to propose that we cannot develop a, a family um, structure, atmosphere, by only giving one hour a week to gathering with the rest of the people. It just can't happen. And, and so, again, coming, coming together, worshiping together, is not what makes us and develops that. It does develop the relationship with Jesus Christ, or it should help us develop the relationship. But it doesn't bring us to faith. I'm talking about once faith has been established. And then we, then we develop that family structure, that family atmosphere, that relational atmosphere. And that's, by the way, I was going to tell you to really take note of the structure, the way I had them laid out. If you remember the papal structure, it was top down. <coughs> there was nothing family about that. Nothing. On the other one, where it went out, they were all on the same level. But what was lacking was the connection in between. You can live under the same roof in a family, but if there's no relationship, guess what? You're not, you're not living like a family ought to live. <coughs> and that was a marked difference in them. They saw God using relational terms in Scripture that characterized family, like father, elder brother, brother, sister, and so on, when describing those who were joined together as believers in Christ. Apostolic Christianity, they noted, related to each other as a spiritual family. They reasoned that if Scripture refers to, to a new Christian as babes, and I'm quoting someone here, they reasoned that if, if Scripture refers to new Christians as babes, mature Christian as children, mature men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters, not only were they obligated to God, they were also obligated to each other. And I would just propose again this morning that this was a distinct difference between them and their Reformed brothers. I lament how 400 years has shaped the children of these kingdom seekers, including me. And the thing I just want the question I just want to put out there is that is it possible that their posterity is more is more Protestant in their way of thinking than apostolic Christianity when it comes to family structure within the body of Christ? When I see how easily we shift from church to church or, sh or split and splinter over, tr over trivial matters, I question whether we have a good grasp on this idea of household Christianity. And I want to develop this a little bit more next time. Uh, the, the, the next message, Lord willing, I would like to take this idea of household Christianity and elaborate on the various types of households that characterize themselves that way. And just, just to, for us to think about how 
what the various types of households may look like. I want to wrap this up today with one more yet that I think was a distinct trait of theirs, and that's where they saw themselves as fellow citizens. They saw themselves as fellow citizens. The apostolic faith demonstrated an unwillingness to use violence and physical force to control their people. The moment the Roman Catholic and Protestant leaders took up the use of carnal force to compel conformity to the decrees that they demanded, they lost their sterling character that distinguishes Christianity from all other man-made religions. There simply is no other religious belief system out there which treats its enemies with love and compassion. I purposely did not distinguish <laughs> on the person that's, that's lower on this scale, on this model, as a laity or a pastor, because Christ calls all of us to be servants. Now, I would, I would in particular say that as pastors, we must serve as servant leaders. But all of us are called to be servants. So the, the concept that I want you to get in your mind when you think about what it means to have household Christianity, and what it means to have a local body of believers, and how you fit into that picture Put yourself in that servant position. That's your calling. Um, yes, we are a community. Yes, we stand on an equal level. Yes, we do not elevate. As pastors, we do not elevate ourselves above our, the, the, the laity. There are distinct roles and responsibilities that calls us to other responsibilities and to make decisions and so forth and so on. But in that, we are called to servanthood. But that's not unique to the pastors. You also are called to servanthood. And I would just like to propose to you this morning that we do the same thing that the rebaptizers did back in the 1600s and that we would look at the scriptures to see what apostolic Christianity really looked like, and that we would just live according to that. Let's pray. Father God.